Well, we uh, shared with you a number of different prayer requests last week and want to just kind of follow up in uh, praying for some of those folks again. Uh, continue to remember Pat Scarfo, Jr. Uh, he's at the Hershey Medical Center, needs a heart. So waiting for a heart transfer, transplant. Boy, transfer, I got that in my head. Huh? Transplant, be praying for Pat and, of course, uh, Pat and Helen and, and Tammy. Got word the other day, uh, yesterday, I believe, Raleigh and Linda's uh, sister-in-law, Raleigh and Linda Kiesling's sister-in-law passed away. If you remember, Paul Kiesling works with uh, Dave Hubble in the Life Catalyst ministry. It's his wife, Raleigh's brother's wife, passed away. So be praying for them. Judy Snyder's brother-in-law passed away a week ago. And so remember her, and of course we mentioned mentioned last week Randy and Sally Nichols and uh, their brother-in-law there are others continue to remember Mike and Julie's story and as Mike's healing in uh, all it's good to see him sitting over here and uh, you continue to pray for them and and I sitting there thinking boy you start praying that it's like there's no end right which is great to know that we have a God where there's no end but I was thinking about um um, Asa and Seuss, uh, they headed out Friday on a three-week trip. They're not going to be back, but Asa and Seuss Bartos, uh, our missionaries, we're sending them out. They're heading to Peru, but they're going to be gone three weeks. They're out raising support in touch with churches and pastors, and, and so we need to be praying for them, faithfully remembering them. And then Landon, Liam, and Lily Trunk, are with Christy Walker, our missionary in Berlin, Germany, on a three-month internship. So you'd be praying for them. That's what I mean. We start doing this, and it's like, wow. But those are some needs that have come to mind and, and some that are very specific right now at this time. So continue to pray. Let me do that as we begin this morning. God, uh, we want to lift up Pat Scarfo. God, he needs a heart. And... Uh, so, God, we, we pray that you, in your sovereignty, in your providential working of circumstances, bring him that heart. And, God, for his family, for Pat and Helen, encourage them, strengthen them. Father, remember Raleigh and Linda, for Paul Kiesling, and uh, as they grieve over the loss of uh, their sister-in-law, for Randy and Sally, for their brother-in-law, for Judy's brother-in-law, or for the family, for them. I, God, it's great to know you've promised a peace, a peace that we don't understand. So I ask that you would just pour that all over these families who need you. For Mike and Julie, continue to strengthen them, and the kids help Mike's uh, knee to heal quicker than uh, later. And I pray, God, for strength for them, for your provision and uh, God, I think of Landon and Liam and Lily as they're over with Christy in Berlin and serving you there. God, would you use them? Would you give them amazing opportunities? Would you give them wisdom and understanding as they interact with uh, people there in the church and uh, there in, in Berlin and in the ministry of that church? God, give them a great ministry. Pray for Christy. Strengthen her, give her direction as she leads them. For Ace and Suze and the boys as they're on the road for 
three weeks now. God, they'll need strength. We pray for alertness and safety on the highways, but God, I pray that you'd go before them to prepare the hearts of pastors and people and churches and other contacts that they'll be making about raising support for them as they desire to get to Peru. So God, we ask that you would undertake for that. And Lord, I pray for our pastoral search team. We've been praying about this now for a while, and, and we're looking for um, the, the next lead guy to come in. And, and Father, I pray that you would give us direction as a church. You point us to the right guy. Father, you direct us. Give us patience. Give us understanding the, the knowledge we need to know to see the things that we need to see, to hear the things we need to hear to understand uh, all of what we need to know. Father, direct us in that. And uh, God, as we open your word this morning, you use your word in a powerful way in our hearts and lives. Help us to obey it, even as we've sung this morning, that we would obey your truth. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And let me just say, too, as we uh, met with our pastoral search team last Sunday afternoon, and worked through a couple of applications that we had. One was not a fit, and another one we're continuing to gather some more information and see if God will have direction for us in that uh, way. So you keep praying, um, and uh, we know God has the right man out there. His hand on him already knows who that is. We just don't know that yet. So you, you be praying uh, for our search team uh, in that process. So April 13th, 1970, uh, the now famous words were urgently radioed back from Apollo 13, the spacecraft, the manned spacecraft to NASA headquarters, and, and the, the famous words, Houston, we've had a problem. And uh, actually, the movie made famous, Houston, we've got a problem, but actually, it was, we've had a problem. And uh, on the Apollo 13 spacecraft, um, there had been a, a significant damage because of an oxygen tank explosion, and the Apollo 13 crew and NASA here in Houston had to overcome a number of serious obstacles, and if you remember back that far, I recognize that was over 50 years ago, and some of you are going, who? Apollo what? <laughs> but, but yeah, I guess we can count uh, on the movies to make it a little bit more relevant and current. But uh, they had to improvise and construct uh, a way to get that uh, spacecraft fixed. And, and uh, they didn't have the oxygen that they, that they really needed. And they had very little electrical power. But they were able to do all kinds of things and put that together only with the stuff that was in that spacecraft. And they got back and on... The 18th of April, they safely splashed down in the ocean. And uh, we think about that. Houston, we've had a problem. Well, as we look into the book of Acts today, the first four chapters of the book of Acts, we talked about last week how the church began in Acts chapter 2. Well, the first four chapters of the book of Acts, the only opposition that we have recorded there to the church that they faced came from outside the church. All of it was outside persecution and attack, and uh, that's what was in the first four chapters of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, 
dishonesty and deceit crept in. And if you remember two individuals, a husband and wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to God, lied, Peter says, to the Holy Spirit, and died on the spot as a result. That, that's an interesting story. And as you read that in Acts chapter 5, Satan filled their hearts, Peter says, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And uh, more persecution comes at the end of chapter 5, but again, that's from the outside. And then we get to chapter 6. In the end of chapter 5, we find that the apostles and, and uh, the believers had continued to proclaim the word of God, share the gospel, tell those there who needed Christ, you must believe. And then in chapter 6, we, we hear Jerusalem, we've had a problem. And the problem, Satan is attempting to divide the church with dissension and division within the body of believers. Coming from within. That was a little unique. They hadn't faced that yet. And we're going to study the church's response to this internal complaining. We're going to see what that is. But I want you to notice when the devil attacks. Look at Acts chapter 6. And if you'd open your Bibles, Acts chapter 6. And uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses. And if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible you'd like to hold in your hands underneath the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible there. And in that Bible, page 762. 762, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. The church had been started back in Acts chapter 2. People were coming to know Christ on the very first day Peter preached. 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ. Man, that would have been something. What, a, what an amazing thing that was for, for the church to start off on that note. But it continued the growth, and we see Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the church continued to grow. And it was at that point that Satan attacked. And we might think that, wow, things are going good. We're, we're all set. The devil's leaving us alone. And it would appear that when things are going well, when we least expect it, seems to be when the devil seems to attack and have the most effectiveness because nobody is expecting it. We just ended the book of 1 Peter a few weeks back. And at the end of 1 Peter, we saw how that we were told Satan like a roaring lion is walking about seeking whom he will devour. He's out to destroy God's people. He's out to destroy God's church. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 6. So what do we do when the devil attacks the church? What is it that we need to do? And I think that we have a model here, at least as, a, as an example for us to follow when the attack of Satan hits the church. And so today we're going to continue in our study of God's plan for the leadership of the church that we introduced to you last week. We're calling it, Who's in Charge Here? And so we're looking at this and it becomes obvious who's in charge as, as the problem moves through in Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, follow with me as I read uh, Acts chapter 6, and I'm going to read the first seven verses for you. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews 
among them, amongst the church, amongst the disciples, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, the apostles are talking to the church, the disciples, the, the, the believers there in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group, pleased the church, the group of disciples that had been gathered together. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them, so the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There you have it. Now, as we work down through this, I want us to see this morning in these verses a biblical pattern for solving problems. And God has put together an approach for that. He's, he's given us a model, a pattern that we can follow as it relates to Scripture and the leadership in the church. That's the study. So we, we see it there. And, and as we look at it, I want, I want us to see three things by way of an outline to help you navigate through. First, I want you to see the, the widow's problem. And that's what we had introduced to us there in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic their widows were overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, we could get all wrapped up and involved in the difference between these groups. Let me just give you a little bit, but we don't need to go deep because I want you to focus. There's a problem. And, and so we have two groups of widows within the church. We have the Hellenistic Jews. They were the Greek-speaking Jews. They were the Jews that did not come from the Jerusalem area. They had been dispersed out and about. Some feel that many of them, as they were getting older, wanted to come back to Jerusalem that they knew so well that was so significant for them, and they wanted to, to live there. So they're the, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews that had come from Palestine and other nations. Their language and much of their culture was Greek, not Jewish. That, that was a little bit of the issue. And so then that's where they were. The Hebraic Jews were the Hebrew women or the widows. And they were the Jewish residents there. Uh, they, were the one, they spoke both Aramaic and Greek, but, but they w didn't have Greek influence in their lives. They were homegrown. We might say they had home field advantage. Because they are from Jerusalem there. And, and so they're, and as they're gathering together, we find out as the church is caring for the widows, um, we find that there was a problem. And the Jewish widows were fine. The Greek widows, the Hebraic widows, they were struggling. They were being neglected. 
And so we're told there in verse 1, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. There was a problem. They weren't being taken care of with the food. Probably we know is that also involved the dividing up or distributing of the money so that the, they could buy food and ta be taken care of. And so there's a little bit of a divide. There's a potential here for real division in the church there in Jerusalem. Now, all along, you had these two groups, but when they came to know Jesus and became part of the church, they became one. The Bible says that's what happens. We may be the all kinds of different people with all kinds of different backgrounds, with all kinds of different cultures, with all kinds of different practices and habits and languages, but when we come to Jesus Christ, he makes us one. The church is one. And that's clear throughout. That's why we talked last Sunday about the importance of community. The church is a community. God's people living and serving and ministering together. So this happens. Acts chapter 6 is about five years after the church began back in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. We're about five years down the road in the history of the church, and we're told the number of disciples was increasing. The church was growing. That word increasing really means multiplying. We're not just talking about one or two here or there. We're talking about multiplication, not addition. You know what? When we follow God's plan of discipleship, and that's another whole issue. I'll have to be careful. I don't start going over there or we'll never get through Acts 6. But multiplication is about making disciples. That's when one individual works with one individual and, and, and all of a sudden you got two Teams and two people start working with two others, and then you got four, and you know that's multiplication. You've seen those kinds of examples of mathematical multiplication before, and as is often the case in this kind of growth, at this point the church is just exploding. It's a brand new situation, and there are some administrative difficulties. That's really what's happened here. the The numbers have gotten such that. Yes, the Grecian Jews were being neglected, the widows. And so, so their families began to complain against the Hebrew Jews or against the Hebraic Jews. And, and, and they're, they're bringing the word gets to the apostles as they were being overlooked. Is the fact that they were outsiders in a sense because they didn't have home field advantage, Right. They were the outsiders, and so whether or not some, would, some have read into this that there's racism. Could very well be. Not sure that the language indicates that that, but we don't know. We weren't there. There certainly could have been some of that. There was a problem, but the fact is they began to complain. And, of course, the apostles hear that word. Now, it's interesting to know, if you'll look back a couple chapters to chapter 2, and verse uh, 44-45, this is talking about the church on the day it, uh, after the day it began. And we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And then look ahead to uh, chapter 4. 
and verse uh, 32. Chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And uh, Peter and John had been arrested for healing the lame man and, and told not to speak or teach anymore. And they said, hey, we can't help but speak the things that we've seen and heard. They get back together with the believers who had been having a prayer meeting, and they keep their prayer meeting going. And they say this, look at Acts 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And we're like, okay, man, things change quickly. So here we are in Acts chapter 6. And there's a group of widows that feel they're being neglected. And so they begin to talk about it. And, and we're going to figure out how to solve. And this is the widow's problem as we think about that. And as we get to chapter 6 with this, all of a sudden, something has to be done because this could explode real quick. I hope you've never been part of a church split. When a church of people who claim to know, who profess to know Jesus Christ as Savior, some issue where they cannot be together, they cannot agree. And most of the time, it is not a doctrinal thing. Most of the time, it's about preferences. And churches split and divide, and what a black spot on the name of Christ. I mean, it's just horrific that that would happen. The potential is here. So as the apostles get word of it, we get into verses 2, 3, and 4, and we read, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Twelve, got, who's the twelve? The apostles. Minus Judas Iscariot, who killed himself, plus Matthias, who they added in Acts chapter 1. There's the twelve. So they're gathered together. And they get all the church together, the people. Now listen, at this point, in the first six chapters of the book of Acts, as the church has begun, there is no mention yet of pastors or elders or bishops. We looked at those three different words for pastor. All the same person, all the same job, the same responsibility. They're synonymous words for the same person we have chosen in our culture at Heritage to simply call the leader or the leaders of the church pastors. At this point, there's no mention of pastors in, in Acts. So when we read, so the 12 who were apostles, okay, God had appointed them as apostles, the leaders at that point. They gathered all the disciples together, the whole church, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And that was part of what needed to be done to care for these widows. And then we look and we move on, and they say this, brothers and sisters. Notice the way the pastors are addressing the church. The apostles were functioning as pastors. They were the spiritual leaders of the church. And it's not too far down in the book of Acts in the, in the life of the church where we begin to see pastors and elders, actually elders mentioned. 
as the leaders of the church spiritually. But, but here they're calling all the people, brothers and sisters. Listen, if you're part of the church, that's the relationship. That's why we are one. I know families divide. But typically, when we see the church as a family, understand that, you know, over the years, I know as we, Jane and I raised our kids, there are times when you as a mom and dad have to discipline your kids, that you have to bring something into their life because of what they've done, discipline, and, and they, I hate you. Any, any parent ever heard that one? Yeah, of course you have. And, and it's like, okay. And it's like, I, I wish I didn't live here. I'm, I'm leaving. Hey, there's the door, right? And uh, because we know they won't. And, and, and it's like, okay. But, but when there's a problem in the home, the family, we don't, we don't quit. We don't run around and look for another family. We say, you know what? We're going to fix the problem. And that's what the apostles, that's what the spiritual leaders, the pastors here, brothers and sisters, choose, you choose, seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will, we the pastors, the apostles, the spiritual leaders, will turn this responsibility over to them. The responsibility to care for the widows, both groups, we will turn the responsibility over to these seven men and we will continue to give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. The leaders, the church leaders, the pastors, the apostles here made a proposal. They said that the care of the widows and the distribution of the food would, would now become the responsibility of seven men. That they would choose, they asked the church, you choose from among you seven men. And he gives them the characteristics that they are to be known, have a good reputation within the church and within the community. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. And you choose them and it will be their job to take care of the widows. You choose, the leaders said to them. And we will give, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word of God. Now, you may or may not have heard that, that this, for, for many believe that this is where the first deacons began. The word deacon is not used here. It is used in a different form, but not in the same way that we call men in the Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or if Philippians chapter 1 deacons but probably the prototype the precursor to what the bible has as deacons because it would seem that that the pattern that is established here you have pastors talking with deacons or helping the people to to choose from among them we do that every year in december at our annual meeting we give a list of, of names to you that have come from within. We have, a, we have a nominating committee, but we every year seek from the church possible names of individuals who can be deacons. And we always say, check out the, re the requirements that is are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and, and let us know. And then what happens? We put them together, look at them, put them on a ballot, and we say, we need your input. 
Tell us, are these who you would choose? We need to know that's what's going on here. So they're not called deacons in Acts chapter 6, but probably are the prototype of what ultimately would de become deacons because the apostles are not called pastors either yet, but they're functioning that way as spiritual leaders of the church. And together, they get the church body together and they solve this problem. They suggest that. So then you move down through the text and we get to the third point. So if you looked at the outline here, um, let me go back. Yeah, we've got the widow's problem, the two sets of widows, the Hebraic Jews or, or the Hellenistic Jews who are the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hebraic Jews, and then you've got the apostles' proposal, and now we see the church's participation. So look at verse 5 and 6, right here in our text. This proposal pleased the whole group. Who's the whole group? The church. The group of disciples that gathered together. The, the proposal that the spiritual leaders, the pastors, had suggested to the church to pick seven men, this pleased the whole group. So they chose, and we go through that list of seven men. And then we realize as they do that, they come, verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles. They say, here's the men, okay? They brought them, they picked them, they chose them. And they bring them back to the apostles, the pastors, the spiritual leaders of the church, and say, here they are. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This wasn't ordination. Which, by the way, some of you were here and involved Tuesday when we called an ordination council that you, the church, had voted to do. We called an ordination council for Mitch Rout. Right To see if we believed as a church that God's calling and enabling and gifting was on Mitch to become a pastor. And so we had that council that met Tuesday. Uh, we had, I think, 25 or 26 men here. And we took about three, three and a half hours. You know what? I don't even think Mitch sweat. Not at all. But he did well, and the council has recommended to the church that we ordain him, which we're going to do here in the days ahead. But he did a great job, and I want to thank you, all of you, those who came. A lot of our deacons were here, and we had a number of our people involved in providing a meal for the council, the, the guests that were here, and family members. Thank you for that. But this is not an ordination. It says they prayed and laid their hands on them. That's not an ordination. They didn't go through what we did last Tuesday with Mitch. No, what that was, it was prayer. It was an affirmation. It was an approval. It was, in a sense, an establishing, a passing of authority to those men who the people had chosen, and now they'd been approved by the spiritual leaders, the pastors of the church, so that they could go minister to that group of widows who'd been neglected. You see, everybody worked together. Church split didn't come. And, and, and as we get through that, it's like, wow. And so, so that the apostles or the spiritual leaders, the pastors could continue to, to lead the church, to function spiritually strong, well they wanted to continue to give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's why they appointed these 
prototype of deacons, but these seven men who would care for the widows. Now, that didn't mean that those men were above serving people. It just meant that there was a different role, a different responsibility that God had given them as the leaders of the church to feed the flock. Later on in the book of Acts, as, as we begin to find churches starting and as Paul and Barnabas are out and as they're appointing elders for those churches that start. And then we get to Acts 20 and Paul is meeting with a group of the pastors, the elders in, in the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And he's talking, he describes all of what, what they're doing. But, but because their role and responsibility is different, and it's not a better than thing. It's not a superiority thing because God's people are equal. I, as one of your pastors, one of your elders, are no different than anybody here except I have a different role within the church. Not a different role than Scott. And when we vote to ordain Mitch, not a different role than Mitch because we'll all be pastors, elders. But... but it is our responsibility to feed the flock. That's what Paul told the Ephesian elders. That's what Peter told the churches when he talked in 1 Peter chapter 5. And so that's what's going on here. The leadership, the serving of these newly appointed men and God's people as the church work together to avert a division. That's God's plan. That's always God's plan. And, and I love how that we don't have any record of those widows or those who are representing those widows to the apostles uh, going around and starting a campaign somewhere to get what they want because they're being neglected. Doesn't happen. They all, the apostles, the, the pastors get everybody together and said, Here's the problem. Here's how we need to do it. We need to do this together. And that's what happened. So let me share with you just three observations as a result. What now? Well, number one, the church will have problems. Understand that. Any church that has ever existed will have problems. Everybody always talks about, wouldn't it be great if we could just be like that early church? Wouldn't it be great if we could just be like the first church? Wouldn't it be great if we could just be like that church in Jerusalem? Why? Because they don't have problems? <laughs> no, they did. And I would say, yes, it would be great. Now, are you saying, uh, Glenn, hey, uh, is there some problem that we don't know about? Not Well, if you don't know about it, I don't either right now at least. No, there's nothing. This is what's in the text. We're talking about God's plan for the leadership of the church, and here it is, and as we talk about this, this is dealing. So the church will have problems often when we least expect them. And I already have referred to 1 Peter 5, 8, your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, was walking about seeking whom he may devour. What does Peter continue on in verse 8 to say? Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. That's what we need to do together. The church will have problems, but there's a way to solve them. And it's not everybody talking amongst themselves. It's us getting together and dealing with those issues. Number two, the church is not a place you attend. It is a people with whom you engage. 
We said that last week. The church is not a place you attend. It is a people with whom you engage. You say, where do you see that in the text? Well, they all got together. They all got together and and worked together as the spiritual leaders, as the seven men, as the body of believers there. They all got together. uh, uh, Luke called them brothers and sisters. The apostles got together, and as they talked to the whole church, brothers and sisters, we are together as a body, and they were serving. They weren't just gathering on Sunday morning. That whole business of the church, of people with whom you engage, Yes, Sunday morning is part of it, but it goes way beyond that. We shared with you last week Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. We stand together. We meet together. We encourage one another when people stop meeting together. The writer of the book of Hebrews said, as the habit or the manner of some is, they've stopped getting together. They've stopped engaging with one another as members of the church. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, we need to encourage one another to meet together, to to be together, to serve together, so that we stand strong when Satan attacks. We need to be engaged. Hebrews chapter 3 and I I have it on the screen, but if you want to look at that, Hebrews chapter 3, also similar to the thought that was carried on in chapter 10, but Hebrews chapter 3, we read this. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. See to it, brothers and sisters. There it is again. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church who are brothers and sisters. And he says this, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another. When? Daily. Wait a minute. We only meet on Sunday mornings. How do we do that? Because we're engaged with one another. It is more than a Sunday morning service at 9.30. This isn't church, folks. We are. We keep saying that, but we keep missing it. The church is not a place you go. It's a people with whom you are engaged. And that's what the writer here is saying. He says, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. In other words, before Jesus comes again, keep doing it. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Has anybody ever known a person who was part of the church that you attend, who who would claim to know Jesus Christ as Savior, that begins to walk away, that begins to get an unbelieving heart, that begins to get a hard heart, and begins to, to waver, and begins to think about the wrong kinds of things, and practice the wrong kinds of things. And what is what is the writer here he say? He says, encourage one another daily. Don't let their sin, their hearts get hardened by sin. By the deceitfulness of sin. So what's he saying? He's saying that as brothers and sisters, when we see one of our brothers and sisters slipping away, chapter 10 would say, 
they're not there on a regular basis. They're not engaged on Sunday mornings. Chances are if they're not engaged on Sunday morning, they're not going to be engaged most of the rest of the week. And the author of the book of Hebrews is saying we need to get with one another. We need to engage one-on-one. Galatians, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, 1, you who are spiritual, when you see a brother or a sister overtaken in a sin, go get them. Restore them. That's the church. That's the plan. And you see, when we do that ahead of time, we don't have those kinds of problems. Number three. The health of the church is dependent on prayer and the ministry of the word. Now that's where I, as one of your pastors, and Scott, and soon to be Mitch, I believe, I don't want to be presumptuous here, I, I, I've been calling Mitch Pastor Mitch. He goes, no, it's not, hey, hey, Reverend Mitch, and it, no, not yet, the church hasn't voted. I understand that. But I told somebody the other day, listen, they wouldn't have recommended we call a council if they didn't think you were ready to go. And the council says you are. I've said to somebody, you know what? It's like when you're going to get married. You don't ask that woman that you want to get married unless you know she's going to say yes. Right? Yeah, you better know what the answer is going to be before you ask. Well, that's, that's the deal here. But what we're saying is The health of the church is dependent on the prayer and ministry of the word. And though that does not mean that it is only the pastors who pray and study the word, but we have to feed the flock. That's what Paul told, that's what Peter told the the, the pastors to do. Feed God's sheep so that they can grow, so that they know to stand against false teaching. So that they can be protected, so that they can be healthy and mature as a body of believers, as a church. And that's critical here. That's critical to the leadership of the church. And that's where we are today. So I trust that as we think this through, the church will have problems. Often when we least expect them. But we stand firm, we resist the devil. We know the truth of the word. Secondly, the church is not the place you attend. It's a people with whom you engage. And we need to stand together. Listen, that's how we help one another overcome the temptation of the devil. Because when the devil, you know, when he picks off somebody, a straggler, we need to see that we need to be ready as brothers and sisters to help. And then thirdly, the health of the church is dependent on prayer and the ministry of the word. I love it that you pay me to study the Bible. Some of you, I'm not going to point fingers, but there's four guys right down here. Maybe you guys should be pastors someday. You get paid to study the Bible. (laughs) Listen, the need is great. The harvest is great. And the laborers, the workers are few. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us direction. God, we know the devil's going to attack, but you've given us a plan. You've given us a pattern to follow so that we, together as your church, 
your pastors and your servants and your people can stand together and defeat Satan. God, I pray that if there are any here today who do not know Jesus, that you would open their eyes, their hearts, their minds to see their sin, to understand that Jesus died for them in their place so that they could be forgiven, so they'd no longer be an enemy of God but could become a child of God. They could become part of the family as one of our brothers and sisters. Father, is anyone who doesn't know you, I pray that even today they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name I pray, amen.